Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Welcome back everyone. My name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host. Simon. And today we are discussing the George Orwell essay, As I Please, 33. It's another As I Please week. Um, to be honest with you, I was a bit stuck for essays. I've been very busy, so I was a bit stuck for the right essay to read. So I decided to choose a, a shortish one, which nevertheless has a lot of quite thought-provoking parts to it. I think you'd agree with that, wouldn't you, Simon? Quite a thought-provoking one. It's a very thought-provoking one. Short and sweet. What are we drinking tonight, Lewis? We are drinking Russian kvass. How did I explain kvass to you, Simon? I just remember you talking about them walking around the streets of Moscow with a vat of it and a cup on a chain where you could rent it for a, a ruble. I, I should say, um, you know, before my Russian family get angry with me, they don't do that anymore. Uh, but um, kvass is a mildly alcoholic, like 0.5 to 1% beer. So alcohol-free then. Basically, by your standards, uh, made out of bread. Uh, it's made out of rye bread, which is why it has this nice dark colour and slightly malty flavour. Well, I described it to you as... If malt loaf with a bit of butter on if you it could was drink, melted. Yes, if you <laughs> could drink malt loaf. Um, and for me, it's the taste of summer in Russia, which I'm missing very much. I used to like going to my spouse's family's dacha, drinking kvass on the veranda. Um, hopefully be able to do that again one day. But uh, I have a supply of kvass in Tokyo and that'll have to do for now. Well, you like it. I really like it. It's a nice summer drink. But Should we explain why we're drinking something so soft? Yeah, so tomorrow I have my first um, COVID vaccination. And on the paper it said, don't drink alcohol 24 hours before it. Which And after you dried your tears. Yeah, and seen a counsellor. <laughs> been let out of the asylum. For your mental health. <laughs> we settled upon 0.5%. Which kvass. is part of your uh, therapy. Yeah. Um, you, you described it as Russian kvass. Are there other kvass? Well, kvass is, um, I might anger Russian listeners, but kvass is generally a kind of Slavic thing, or at least sort of uh, Eastern Slavic. It's primarily Russian, but you do get it in all kinds of former Soviet countries. Uh, I think maybe you get it in Poland, you definitely get it in Ukraine. Um, and uh, yes, it's a brilliant drink and I'm really lucky to be able to buy it in Japan. Where'd you buy it? In a Russian shop uh, in Ginza called Red Square. Uh, it's actually in, uh, in, it's called Red Square but it's in Japanese, it's called Akaba, no, Akano Hiroba. If you had a Scottish shop in Ginza, what would it be called? Or British shop? 
British shop. Uh, that's two two different things. Would the British shop have like a Welsh corner, a Scottish corner? Uh, one one for each. So if it's very a Scottish dangerous. shop and a, or a British shop, what would you call it? Uh, oh. Tell you what, Orwell's, that would be a good name for a British <laughs> shop, wouldn't it? Best of British. How much CCTV would you have? <laughs> That's a good point. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, this is a sober Orwellian. They said it couldn't be done, and I think they were right. So but... can we apologise now for content? <laughs> um, let's get on to the essay. You're uh, actually exceedingly dull people, aren't you, normally? <laughs> speak for yourself. Um so, uh, Simon, As I Please, 33, published in the Tribune, 14th of July, 1944. Quite a lot going on in the world at that time. Uh, what did you make of this essay? Oh, it's a great one. It, and it's, a, it's actually a conversation I've had before with, with people. And I, st I still don't have an answer, even despite reading this essay. And you're, as you'll find out now, we can talk about it, but I don't have a definitive answer. I don't have a definitive position on it. Do you want to just explain what it's about? Well, uh, it's one of Orwell's As I Please essays, and I think previous listeners will remember we've established that he had this column in the Tribune where he was allowed to write about whatever he liked. And um, this essay comprises two parts. One is about the morality of bombing civilians in wartime and the other is about advertising and I do hope we can get on to the parts about advertising yeah. but I think probably what you're alluding to Simon I'm guessing is uncertainty over the morality of bombing civilians. Exactly that so when you're sat in control room and you're um, Commodore Harris Commodore correct Bomber, Bomber Harris. That was his nickname. I didn't want really to use that because then we're, it's, it becomes a loaded, yeah, a loaded right. point in the argument. So I tried to stay away from his nickname. But yeah, Commodore Harris, or known as Bomber Harris, because he was in charge of the bombing campaign of the Second World War from the British side. Although I think he coordinated the whole Allied efforts. Um, and I'm sure they would have had these questions these moral questions about what we're going to do is are the ends worth the means why do they bomb civilians well when we say bomb civilians they're, they're bombing urban populaces places where there could be civilians and luckily Quite often the civilians were given warning and able to get out of these cities, but on many occasions they weren't, such as in Dresden, Hamburg, and fire firestorms were created in the cities and thousands of people died. So what, what is the goal of, of bombing civilians? Well, the goal of bombing major urban areas is to... Oh, sorry, I've got crevasse hiccups. <laughs> Blimey. Uh, it's gone right down your crevasse. Um, <laughs> this is what happens when I don't drink alcohol. I'm, I'm a mess. I'm all over the you place. Have, you have all of the bad yeah. stuff of, about being drunk with none my, of you. My phone's going, what's going on? What's this? <laughs> um, so uh, I think one of the arguments for bombing major urban centres is crippling your enemy's economy, isn't it? Yeah. And But also... Um, and this isn't always mentioned, 
it's also about creating fear and um, impressing your enemy with your superior firepower. Orwell mentions how um, when Germany bombed Warsaw at the beginning of the Second World War, uh, they created a film uh, called Baptism of Fire, and Orwell goes on to say that this was sent all around the world with the object of terrorising neutrals. Um, and we have to remember there hadn't been mass aerial bombing before the Second World War. There had been... There had been. Well, there had been, but it had been in isolated pockets, like in Spanish Civil War yeah. and in various colonial wars, which Orwell mentions as well. Uh, so, uh, am I right? It's about crippling the economy and, and creating fear? You're, you're exactly right, but you've missed one thing, which is that when, when a civilian population stops supporting the war, you lose the war. The home front is vital in that aspect, and one of the reasons to bomb the, bomb the civilian population, and one of the reasons behind the Blitz in London was to make the British people fed up with war. So we would turn against our own government in fighting this senseless war the, with the inevitable victory of the fascists. It didn't work, but that's the reasoning behind it. And it also didn't work with Germany. The, the, the night before the fall of Berlin, we were still bombing cities. So yeah, that's another reason. But yeah, you're spot on with your, with your observation. The first point that I thought we should discuss uh, in regards to this essay is whataboutism, which we've established before is something yeah. you really hate when yeah. it comes to political arguments. What, what did you think of that? Oh, well, I'm with Orwell on this, aren't I? He's responding to a letter that's been sent to him, isn't he? Or a number of letters. So he's obviously written about bombing, and a lot of people have assumed that he's pro-bombing and making excuses for it. And he's explaining in this essay, I'm not making excuses for it. I'm just giving some reasons behind my points. It's very fact-based, this essay. Yeah. I really admire how Orwell uses cold, hard facts yeah. in a political argument, which is something I think we could do with more of these days, especially facing whataboutism. When you talk about facts, one issue he missed out. He talks about the Spanish Civil War and about how the British didn't invent bombing of civilians. And he puts that on the fascists. He talks about the Italians in Abyssinia, now Ethiopia. And he talks about the Spanish Civil War and the, was it the Condor Legion? So when Hitler was rearming Germany covertly, and the Spanish Civil War started, he saw it as a perfect, perfect testing ground for Blitzkrieg. And the Condor Legion were his um, Messerschmitt bombers and with the new tactics they devised, the dive bombing. And the first place they tried this out on was, do you know the name of the, in the Pais Basco? It was Guernica, wasn't it? Guernica. Uh, so brilliantly represented by Picasso in his famous painting of Guernica. Sorry, can I just say, um, there is a full-sized replica of Guernica in a department store in Tokyo, right, op right opposite a Starbucks, and people sit in front of it and drink their frappuccinos, and that's always made me pretty queasy. I didn't know that. I have to go and see that. 
It's on my line. I can point it out to you anytime. I used to live about three minutes' walk from the Reina Sofia in Madrid, where it is. But unlike London, Madrid doesn't have free museums, so I seldom went. Because you had to pay a lot to get in. Well, you, you can see this one in Japan for free. Do you think he's justified in this? In Do you think he's supporting the war cause by putting the blame elsewhere? Well, you're right that he does use, I mean, Orwell kind of uses whataboutism himself by yeah. saying it's the fascists who started it. And he also, he's not quite accurate, is he? I don't know if you picked up on this, but I'm quite surprised that Orwell doesn't remember that aerial bombing actually started in the First World War and bombardment of civilians started in the First World War uh, because the Germans were dropping bombs from Zeppelins yeah. onto London and Edinburgh and possibly some other cities. And also, um, have you ever heard of the bombardment of Scarborough? I haven't. Scarborough, um, a, basically the Blackpool of Yorkshire, um, <laughs> was shelled by the Germans in 1914 or 15 for no particular reason. It wasn't really militarily important. I think... They could reach it. Yes, exactly. But was that of, from a boat? It was from a boat, yes. Well, yeah. Sorry, it was shelling rather than yeah. aerial bombardment. But um, the, the British used aerial bombardments consistently in their colonial campaigns. Well, Orwell like does point Isolated out, villages that would contain some dissidents, they would just send over a, a biplane and they would just throw grenades out of the side of the cockpit. And uh, that rather puts me in mind of what's been happening in... Uh, northern Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan for the last 20 years. They said now it's done by drones exactly. that you can't see and a guy sitting in Washington on a remote control is doing it. Um, uh, to be fair, Orwell does actually mention how um, Britain from about 1920 uh, had been bombarding uh, indigenous peoples, Afghans, Indians and Arabs, and Orwell writes who had no, little or no power of hitting back. Orwell then says the bombing of large cities is a fascist invention. Um, the thing I feel about this is, yes, he is kind of indulging in whataboutism himself, but he is also using... He's doing it unemotionally. He's using facts, um, and he's arguing his case quite well and supporting his argument quite well. But I don't know how relevant it is. It, he's, he's saying that, okay, we didn't do it first. So I guess the letter that's been written to him is saying that we're responsible for this. We've, they must have come after Dresden or something, and we're, we are the creators of this doom. And he's saying, no, we weren't. But it still doesn't solve the morality conundrum. Well, I think that that leads on to Orwell's latter point about how if you believe in war, if you believe in war as a way to solve international disputes or is, as in something that needs to be engaged in in the defence of your ideology, your country, then you can't be squeamish about the use of any weapon whether it's aerial bombardment or whether it's bullets. So he's advocating total war. I'd say he's 
What about the war of the 17th, 18th century? Well, it was a different kind of thing, wasn't it? I, I am reading War and Peace at the moment, and it does strike you how different warfare was then, just men marching across fields uh, in formation. I mean, I don't think the armies of the 18th and early 19th century were any more moral or gentlemanly. They just didn't have the technology with which to cause such destruction. No, that's true, because I'm, like I say, reading War and Peace, there's so much about refugees fleeing. Uh, there's so much about uh, soldiers burning down farms and carrying off uh, farmers' wives and daughters. Uh, so it's not like it's not like there was an age of gentlemanly warfare. If Marlborough had ha at the Battle of Blenheim had had the Gatling gun, he would have lined them up and mowed down the people walking towards him. Make no bones about that. But the what the point that I think Orwell's trying to make is, and it's this quote here: the hypocrisy of accepting force as an instrument while squealing against this or that individual weapon, or of denouncing war while wanting to preserve the kind of society that makes war inevitable. And here we come on to uh, Orwell's perennial concern as a socialist. You know, if you, if you want to live in a better society, in a more just society, then... You can't just make cosmetic changes. You, you need to change society at its root. If you want to, you, you know, I think Orwell understands why people become pacifists, but I feel, I mean, you, you may correct me on this, but I feel that what Orwell's saying here is, you know, you can either be a complete pacifist or you have to accept don't that. Don't go half in. Don't go half in. Um, and he also realises to conquer a man such as Hitler and his ideals of morality, you have to fight fire with fire. Otherwise you will lose that war and later regret not having gone all in. And his experiences before the Second World War, do you think they've influenced him? Do you think the Spanish Civil War has influenced him? I think so. In, in, in the need for ruthlessness? Yes, I think so. And... Of course, he saw a different kind of ruthlessness in the Spanish Civil War, which we've discussed before, which was the ruthlessness of the Soviet-backed communists, yeah. basically destroying the side they should have been helping. Um, and if you think, again, you know, he mentions how he mentions the Condor Legion. The Republicans didn't have a lot of... They didn't have the kind of support that the fascists did. Um, I don't believe... They did get a few like Soviet planes, but there was nothing like the Condor Legion for the Republicans, was there? No. They got Soviet arms, but they weren't up to scratch, and not in the same numbers. And maybe a few barrels don't, of Don't crass. forget the Italian volunteers and the mm. Italian armaments that the nationalists received as well. And, you know, several barrels of Kvass will only go such a long way <laughs> in the Spanish summer. I blame Kvass for the... The implosion of the Republicans. <laughs> it was it was a it was a catastrophe. Uh, oh, <laughs> I think you're stretching. He's stretching on that one. <laughs> um, what do you think he, he, his um, statement he makes about 
women and children? Yes, this is very interesting. Uh, I would say the final point in this essay, or it comes in the middle, but the way we've discussed it is the final yeah. point. Um, the final point from this essay that I took was uh, against sentimentality, which is quite funny because, as we've discussed before, Orwell, he likes a bit of sentimentality, he likes a bit of um, nostalgia, nostalgia, but when it comes to politics and gender politics and uh, war, Orwell is not sentimental at all because he makes this point about how, and this is quoting Orwell, the outcry against killing women, if you accept killing at all, is sheer sentimentality. Why is it worse to kill a woman than a man? And then he goes on to look at it again empirically. Uh, he makes a lot of effort to be empirical in this essay, pointing out that some people would argue that the reason you shouldn't kill women is because it uh, then reduces future numbers of children. But he goes on to say, well, that's nonsense. And he talks about population, how it was affected by the First World War, when millions of men were killed and comparatively few women were killed. And really... Because he says you only need one man to spread his seeds amongst many. As, as, as you well know. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all too well. <laughs> oh, oh, oh well. <laughs> it's kind of like a demographic reasoning, this, isn't it? Yes. And, and he's saying, basically, a man's life is worth as much as a woman's. Why, why should we just make the deaths of men a statistic, yet sentimentalise adversely the, the deaths of women? And in a way, it's a feminist point, isn't it? That the life of a man mm -hmm. is, as, is worth as much as a woman's. You shouldn't be treating women like these delicate creatures who are somehow above men and somehow... Uh, and in World War Two, when he's writing this, a lot of women have been mobilised. Yes, not only on the, um, home, front, on the home front, but in the Soviet Union, there were female snipers, female Christ, soldiers. Yeah, on the front line. My grandmother drove pilot, uh, pilots to their planes in jeep on, at the, on the airfields. That was her job. My grandmother uh, was in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. She was, you know, in war films, when you see, like the command centre, the air, air command, bomber command, and they're all pushing like blocks of wood across maps with sticks. That's what my grand did during the war. Oh, that's cool. I like that. And she... Um, I always wanted to play on one of those. Yes. And have you ever thought, you know, those his sort of time experiments you do sometimes in your own head, you know, wouldn't, what if the war had never happened? I mean, if the war had never happened... Don't know about you. I would never have been born because my gran and granddad only met because they were both yeah. in the RAS. So, same as mine. She drove him to his plane because he's a pilot. My granddad. So you would not be listening to this podcast yeah. now if it wasn't for the Second World War. But what would be the demographic situation in Europe had the Second World War never happened? That's a very good point. There would it would certainly be there would certainly be a lot more people in Europe. Do you think there would have been less immigration into Europe after the war from uh, former empire countries? Um, there would have been less because one of the reasons we opened up to immigration to former empire countries was to supplement the jobs done by 
people who had lost their lives in, in more in construction and things like that. But I did write a note here about how European civilization demographically in the last 20 years has stalled. And it's not because of war, but because of the liberation of, of women and women's rights. And the birth rate has significantly dropped in Europe. And of course, when we say the liberation of women, that just does include uh, contraception as well. Con yeah, contraception. And, but um, Europe has always been, this is a very global thing as well, but Europe in particular has always been a very, a, a continent that has evolved. And we're evolving now with regards to immigration. So as our birth rate has declined, we are supplementing it with encouraging immigration. And it's, it's the future of Europe. It's the new Europe. Let's just say one quick thing before we go. So when he, what, what date did he write this on again? It was published um, July 1944. Okay, so how much does this essay change after the atomic bomb has been dropped? I think it's the same argument. Yes, I think you're right, because... Thinking about one of the arguments against using the atomic bomb, again, attacking civilians, not particularly, you know, I don't think Hiroshima and, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were particularly useful militarily as targets, but arguably many more people might have died if the Second World War had gone on for longer and there had been an invasion of mainland Japan. Well, they, they did an estimate for a mainland invasion of Japan of deaths, and it was in the high millions. Because the, the defenders were going to fight to the end. And Well, just look at what happened on Iwo Jima. Yeah. I think that's when they made the decision to drop it, wasn't it, after that battle. And the advent of the atomic bomb meant there hasn't been a World War Three. There's a big argument for that. That's true. The um, what's the word uh, for it? Isn't there a word? Mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Is it mad? Mutually yeah. assured destruction. I can't just keep thinking of uh, Doctor Strange. Well, should we move on to advertising? Yes, let's lighten the lighten the mood a bit. Or so, not? <laughs> I don't know what advertising you've been watching. So um, again, classic. Orwell, looking at what's going on around him, taking something very mundane, like a, a poster advertising uh, lime juice, Rose's lime juice, which I believe is still made. Well, Ro Rose's lime marmalade is still made. Mm. I love it. Oh, you do like a bit of lime, don't you? I do like a bit of lime. Lime marmalade, melted butter, and a nice bit of white toast. Whoa. That's a breakfast. I know, I know what we're eating next week. Um, so anyway, uh, he, he's been looking at what's going on around him, advertising, posters for lime juice, and thinking about how it reflects on society and capitalism. Yeah. Uh, what did you make of this part of the essay? He, he foresees the downfall of poster advertising on walls. And in that respect, he's right. But he hopefully thought that the downfall of post-advertising would mean less advertising and influence and benign or banal influencing of people. But he was very wrong about that because advertising has 
absolutely seeped into every aspect of our lives now, hasn't it? Well, we, you and I talk a lot about Instagram, don't we? I mean, we're kind of turning our own lives into adverts, yeah. or we're using the aesthetics of adverts to present our own lives. The people who are, it's, you know, the term influencers, they are basically walking adverts now. It's their job. They're a walking advert that is documented and shared amongst as many people as possible. You watch a video on the internet, it has to be paused every three minutes, so you watch a video whilst the person advertises something. Every time you open up a web page, there's a pop-up advert. You open your mailbox and there's 20 different leaflets from different companies advertising something. It's everywhere. Yes, and it's disgusting. Oh, sorry, Simon, just a second. I'm, I want to uh, pour myself another glass of Ochakovsky <laughs> kvass, the taste of the Russian countryside. The sad thing is, Lewis, if we so desired, we could find an advert, we could find a sponsor for this podcast and advertise it. We're not because it's a bloody Orwellian podcast and we just feel it would be very, very and very bad taste to profit from it. I maybe mentioned but, it before. But it's the reality. Most podcasts, you have to listen to them advertising some absolute bollocks product they, have, they feel nothing about. Well, you and I are lucky to have our own streams of income and this is basically our hobby isn't it yeah. but um yeah, but most people who are profiting from youtube on podcasts it started as a hobby nobody had put a gun to their head and said make this your full-time job that's they true. just couldn't resist the forces of monetization and and that's the problem with uh, late stage capitalism is that uh, it encourages you to monetize your hobbies and uh, yeah. Instead of just enjoying yourself, you know, can, can you squeeze some, some pennies out of it? Can you tell me anything in society that hasn't been commodified or monetized? God, that's a difficult question to answer. I went to the, um, what's the name of the park in Shinjuku? Air, air hasn't been commodified You yet. can buy air, mate. You can buy air now in shops. It's like fresh air and then you like suck it in. <laughs> What's the name of that big park in Shinjuku? Shinjuku Going. Mm. You've got to pay to get in it. 500 yen, which is about three quid, three pounds, five dollars. I, I, you will have to pay to breathe within a hundred years. We do pay for um, access to clean water as well. We don't do. we? And the people who don't have access to clean water, it's, it's because they're not wealthy. I found this point really interesting about how he, he mentions this advert for lime juice. I rather liked the, the way he writes about the advert. Shall we, shall we read the dialogue yeah, yeah, for the yeah. listeners? Do you want to be the, uh, the Jeeves or the Worcester? I'll be the Worcester sauce. Okay, I'll be the Jeeves. I fear you do not see me at my best this morning, Jenkins. There were jollifications last night. Uh -huh. Your young master looked upon the wine when it was red and also upon the whiskey when it was yellow. To use the vulgar phrase, I have a thick head. What do you think the doctor would prescribe, Jenkins? If I might make so bold, sir, a glass of soda water with a dash of roses lime juice would probably have the desired effect. Go to it, Jenkins. You are always my guide, philosopher and friend. So this is an advert. <laughs> this was on a poster or, you know, in uh, a It's a career magazine. in the radio for us. So Orwell points out, quote, every theatre goer is at any rate assumed to have a secret fantasy life. 
in which he thinks of himself as a young man of fashion with faithful old retainers. And when this is the case, Orwell writes, the prospect of any drastic social change recedes perceptibly. And that's as true today as it ever was. Um, He's basically talking about what I mentioned earlier mm. on, these Instagrammers. We live our lives um, consuming these fantasies, and then it's like a vicious circle because we consume the fantasies, we think that's what life should be like, and then we try and live the fantasy, and then they try to sell us another fantasy, yeah. and it keeps going round and round. We're living in a society now where you can monetize not really doing anything. I still can't tell you what most YouTubers are actually doing. They're just living life and monetizing. Taking it. things out of boxes, a lot of them. No, they're just literally just walking around, filming their life, and monetizing it. We are, we've monetized daily routine. I don't know where we go from here. And I don't think there's any coming back. Because once people realise they can make considerable profit from merely being, I don't think there's any coming back from that when it comes to helping society or creating a, a more equal society. And how long until we go from making money from being to paying for the privilege to be? Exactly. Maybe we're already there. Well, going back to questions of demographics in about 10 generations time the choices are going to have to be made the world is going to be too populated so are you going to have to pay to be or pay to exist now this is an Orwellian podcast podcast is definitely very different when we're not drinking isn't it? <laughs> we're very gloomy <laughs> Christ Never mind, we've got some carrot cake in the fridge. Yeah, a cup of tea and a carrot cake. So, shall we say adieu? Before we finish, I think we should just... Um, w what did you think of the last paragraph of this essay? Did you pick up on it? I didn't. So, I think this is worth mentioning as something... Uh, may we've often touched on Orwell's attitude to women as being very <laughs> much that of a man born in 1903. Uh, something that you can criticise him for. Yeah. Um, and we do. We'd like it to be known. So not only does Orwell use a rather unpleasant term to describe uh, adverts um, aimed at women, but he writes, I seldom or never pass a group of officers in the WAFs, that's the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, ATS, um, Army training service? service? Not sure if it's training. Um, or REMS, Women's Royal something, Naval Service. Territorial. Mm -hmm. Auxiliary Territorial yeah. Service. Or REMS, that's the Women's Naval Service of the time. I rarely pass a group of officers in the WAFs, ATS or REMS without having cause to reflect that, at any rate, promotion in the women's services has nothing to do with looks. <laughs> now, it's um, it's not pleasant. It's of its time. 
Um, it is an, another example of Orwell's very dry humour, but it's something that you might expect an elderly relative to say these yeah. days, and something you wouldn't quite uh, allow to pass by if it was said by anyone younger than about 80. Yeah. So just before we go, I want to run something by you. I've recently just finished writing a paper in which Orwell is a heavy component. Do tell. Um, I won't get into the details of the paper because I don't want the listeners to fall asleep. But as a part of it, in the months before his death, he was visited in the sanatorium by a woman who was working for the government for the Secret Service. And she said to him, could you give me a list of authors, publishers and editors who might be sympathetic to our department? which was basically anti-communist propaganda. This is 1950, the Cold War is really getting into it. And he did. Not only that, he gave her another list of people she should keep an eye on, they should keep an eye on. This has been uh, one of the things that people have criticised Orwell yeah. for. They call it Orwell's blacklist. Yeah. And um, I think it's something we ought to discuss more in another... Another, yeah. Podcast, but I agree. But I will say I think we can look at it in a more nuanced way. There's a there's a preview for yes. Yeah. Right then, so all well. That ends. <laughs> <laughs>